You can pray until you faint. But if you don't get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. And it's no need of running and no need of saying, Honey, I'm not going to get in the mess. Black Power Talks. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Dexter Mlemwingu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. Today we're going to talk about the current surge in the movement for reparations to African people in the United States and elsewhere. Reparations is just economic compensation paid for the theft of human and material resources from Africa and African people, as well as the underpopulation and underdevelopment of Africa and her people and the political servitude, material impoverishment, and cultural discontinuity and disintegration of African people throughout the world. In St. Petersburg, Florida, organizers with the Reparations Now Committee of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement are leading the Take Back the Dome campaign in response to the decades of economic devastation that the building of the 86-acre Tropicana Field has caused the African community in St. Petersburg, Florida. The Tropicana Field, a dome baseball stadium in the home of the Tampa Bay Rays baseball team, sits on top of the gas plant area, an African district of St. Petersburg, Florida, where 2,000 residents Dozens of businesses and churches once existed. Starting in the 1970s, St. Petersburg officials declared the gas plant neighborhood blighted and promised economic development in the area. Africans were convinced to sell their property, and a series of redevelopment schemes transferred the land and wealth to rich developers at the expense of the African community. On Sunday, December 12, 2021, residents and descendants of the gas plant community are holding a reunion at the stadium. The purpose of this reunion has been stated as to reminisce on their legacy and inspire the future. Members of the Uhuru movement will be attending this event and holding a Reparations Now demonstration. The Uhuru movement has demanded that the land and the economic resources be returned to the African community of St. Petersburg, Florida. Today we talk with a leader in that struggle. The struggle over Tropicana Field has implications for the liberation struggles of African people around the world. In the small Caribbean island of Barbuda, Africans are fighting wealthy white American land developers and neo-colonial African politicians who have turned their communally owned land into vacation resorts. In a repeat of the build-up to the 1984 Summer Olympics, 
The African and Mexican indigenous communities in Inglewood and South Los Angeles are being ripped up and exported to the surrounding desertus areas. In their stead, a new complex of sports stadiums have been developed. Similar schemes have pushed out African and Mexican and indigenous residents in San Diego. With the SoFi Stadium in Inglewood as the site of the 2022 Super Bowl, the working class communities have been promised economic development and jobs. The history of Tropicana Field in the Gas Plain area suggests otherwise. But the history of resistance led by the Ahur movement offers a political way forward and a revolutionary optimism for the people. The Ahura movement has led the struggle for reparations to African people for over 40 years. In November 1982, the African People's Socialist Party, APSP, organized the first Tribunal for Reparations in New York City and subsequently formed the African National Reparations Organization, a mass political organization that operated for 12 subsequent years. The APSP and African National Reparations Organization placed the reparations demand into the hands of the African working class. They turned the reparations demand into a reality by taking it out of the straitjacket of purely legal and legislative approaches and making it a household word. The mass organizing begun by the African National Reparations Organization was picked up by the International People's Democratic Ahura Movement, a mass organization formed by the African People's Socialist Party in 1991 to fight for the self-determination of the African community and to bring African people back into political life. The International People's Democratic Ahura Movement currently operates the Reparations Now campaign. Part of this campaign is the African reparations claim that allows every African to charge the U.S. and Western colonial powers with genocide against African people and to demand reparations. Take Back the Dome is part of this campaign. To discuss this with us today, we have Chimurega Silimbao. Chimurega is the National Director of Organization for the African People's Socialist Party and the President of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement, St. Petersburg Branch. It is in that role where he leads the Take Back the Dome campaign. A lifelong member of the Uhuru Movement, in 2001, Chimurega took the reparations demand to the world stage at the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa. Uhuru Chimurega, welcome back to Black Power Talks. How are you doing, comrade? Uhura, I appreciate being here. Um, this is a subject that I'm very passionate about. It's uh, mm-hmm. uh, the question of reparations is uh, obviously been on the agenda of the Uhura movement, the African People's Socialist Party, International People's Democratic Uhura movement for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it makes total sense for us to uh, spend a lot of time to try to deepen this question and and really mm-hmm. draw out the uh, really important factors in making such a demand for reparations. And also, I think this particular struggle helps people to see that it's it's not one thing. It's a lot of different things that can be demanded in the question of reparations. The most important factor, however, it must be connected to our struggle to free ourselves from the colonial tentacles of the U.S. government. Yes, sir. So if you use reparations as a struggle, uh, not as the end unto itself, but as a means to get to the end, and which is self-determination and freedom for African people. 
appreciate that comrade and that's why we appreciate having you on the show to help us really understand uh the soul question the soul struggle so on december 12th 2021 you and a contingency of the who movement will be attending the gas plant reunion held at Tropicana field um what's the purpose of this reunion and what role will you all be playing in it well uh <laughs> we'll we'll be there to to remind them that you don't have reunions uh about funerals. So this is, uh, this reunion would essentially be celebrating the, the destruction of a whole, of the whole gas plant area and Laurel Park, which was, uh, near the gas plant area, which became part of the devastation that the city carried out in terms of taking property to build the Tropicana Dome, uh, Laurel Park ended up being flattened and then turned into a parking lot. By the way, parking lot number four, where they're doing this reunion, is exactly the location where Laurel Park used to be. And now they're saying they are remembering those who were displaced. It just seems to me I wouldn't want to have a reunion where, particularly, that's partially sponsored by the city of St. Petersburg, the same people who shot me in the back and buried our community are now saying, hey, let's come and celebrate that destruction. And I I think it's one, absurd and outrageous. And uh, we won't be participating in the reunion, but we will be having a Reparation Now rally at the corner of 5th Avenue South and 16th Street. This rally is not an attack on the people who are attending the reunion. It's an attack on the city's assumption that they can now pull another Tropicana scam. Uh, the first Tropicana scam one was when they built the stadium. This is Tropa scam two, where they're trying to redevelop this property and uh, hand it over to white developers uh and it just seems to me that the black community uh, must fight back. We must demand reparations. We're not going to let another tragedy and travesty happen to our community. And uh, this is a struggle that can help us understand the larger question of self-determination and economic development and the public policy of the economic development as, as opposed to a public policy of police containment. Oh, thank you for that. So, you know, can you tell us a little more about the demands of the Take Back the Dome campaign? So we're demanding that the city of St. Petersburg turn over the 86 acres uh, that make up Tropicana Field property. That includes the parking lots, that includes the Tropicana Dome, uh, which is now estimated to be worth about a billion dollars. We feel like... There are some arguments by the bourgeoisie. Well, it's not worth a billion dollars. It's worth under five, only $500 million. Well, they can squabble over that if they want to, but uh, we say we want the control over those 86 acres. We want the creation of the Reparations Land Trust and Development Authority that would control that 86 acres, but not only that 86 acres, we would also take control over other city-owned property uh, within a uh, empowerment zone that we think would be uh, reached deep into the African community. So all this city land is sitting vacant, not being developed, 
uh, the Reparations Land Trust and Development Authority would take control over that property. This would be an elected board uh, from majority precincts in the African community, and uh, they would be the ones that control how that property is going to be developed. So we want those 86 acres. Now, of course, we still have in this city a lease with the Tampa Bay Rays until 2027. Uh, our position is that they want to leave and we want them to leave. If they pay $10 million as a penalty, they can leave tomorrow. We'll help them pack. And then they they can pay us extra for helping them pack. But they, they can pay the $10 million as a penalty for leaving early. We'll be rid of them. They'll be rid of us. And... They can go on to Toronto, Canada, wherever they say they want to go and uh, and do their thing. But then we would be in a position to go ahead and develop that property and create economic development and, and independent commerce with the African community. Oh, horror, horror. yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that, Chimaringa. Because uh, you were talking about the gas plant area and developing economic commerce for the African community. Now, the gas plant area was the second oldest African neighborhood in St. Petersburg, Florida. What was life like for African people in the gas plant and the surrounding areas before this colonial assault against the community? Well, you, you had 800 families, about 300 businesses, nine black churches. There were schools uh, in that community. I think it was like two or three schools. I remember at least Davis Elementary uh, being in that area. All of that is no was no more after uh, the city purchased this property. The way they did it was under the pretense that they were going to create a situation where a developer could come in, develop the property, and bring light industry, and they would bring jobs. Uh, that was the scam because they had no intention of bringing any light industry to the gas plant area. So in the area of 1989, 90, they said, oops, we can't get anybody to do light industry, so we're going to build a baseball stadium. Now, at the time, they didn't have a baseball team. So in 1995, uh, after they had built the stadium, they got the baseball team. It was they were initially named the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. They thought that was a little uh, too much with the devil part of it, so they changed the name to the Tampa Bay Rays, and uh, just moved on from there. But in the last two years, uh, they've been kind of squawking about how the attendance is always so low. Although they've had good teams, the attendance has never been satisfactory for the team. So the guy Stein Sternberger, who is one of the owners, he made a suggestion last year that the solution to this attendance problem was that they could play half of their home games in Toronto, Canada, and half of them in St. Pete. Uh, in uh, Tropicana Dome, the the mayor who was 
Rick Kreisman at the time. Uh, he is the outgoing mayor. Uh, at the time, he said, that's silly. That's what he was quoted as saying, that that's silly to expect them to go to Toronto to do half of their home games and half of them in St. Pete. So he moved to start getting developers lined up to redevelop that property with the assumption that the Rays wouldn't be there. So he moved forward, but the city council was saying, hold the phone, don't, you know, you should cease and desist negotiating this thing and you should wait till the next mayor comes in. You're almost out of office. Why would you be making these kind of decisions, these kind of big economic decisions where you won't even be the mayor come January of 2022? He kind of quieted down with his negotiations and then he picked two of several developers. He picked JMA Sugar Hill and Midtown Development developers and he decided they were the final two. On last week, he made the announcement on Thursday that he had chosen Midtown developers to be the developer for Tropicana Field. Now, this is this matter is still not settled. One, because we're still making the demand for reparations and control over those 86 acres. Two, the city council is still not too happy with the idea that he went forward, even though they told him to stop. Three, he will not be the mayor in January. There will be another mayor, Ken Welch, who is the mayor-elect, the first African elected to the mayor's seat in the city of St. Petersburg. He was elected November the 2nd of this year. So there are a lot of outstanding things happening here. Uh, this this project that he's trying to make happen through Midtown developers, uh, one, we got to stop that from happening. That So it's our fight back is kind of operating at a couple of different levels. When you have to stop that from happening. Two, you have to get on the table the question of reparations for African people. Now, so far, when asked about the question of reparations and the demand we're making, he has refused, the current mayor has refused to comment in the media. So on yesterday, we sent a letter to the mayor-elect Ken Welch stating that uh, we wanted the reparations now program and the uh, reparations land trust and development authority to be the project that carries out development, the, the organization, the city department to carry out development of the Tropicana field, and that they would dismiss uh, all its foolishness being put forward by Rick Kreisman, mayor, the current mayor Rick Kreisman for Midtown developers to develop that property. We're not going to watch as uh, another grave is being dug uh, for the gas plant area and in the form of white developers coming in and taking it over and then turning it into a haven for white tourists. That's not going to happen. Not if mm. we got anything to do with it. And right now we have a petition online. We have 
hard copy petition is, is going very well. People are, are very open to it. And uh, again, we've made that uh, our demand uh, to the mayor on yesterday, the incoming mayor. Uh, he has he now has that project uh, himself since we uh, we linked in the Reparations Land Trust and Development Authority plan uh, in the letter that we sent him on yesterday. So so all of these things are kind of lining up. And I would mention one other thing. The incoming mayor is also having a community conversation on Friday, Saturday and Monday. Monday is going to be virtual. Saturday is going to be 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern. And uh, we're lining our forces up to attend that meeting. The title of that community conversation is called Let's Talk About Progress. So we think this is an excellent time to get our program on the table. Right on. Thank you. So, Karma, you referred to the sleight of hand used to take the land from Africans as Tropiscan. Yes. As we noted at the top of the show, the Rays moved to the Dome in 1998, but the urban removal scheme that pushed out Africans dates back way to the 70s, the 1970s. Right. Can you explain some of the methods used to take the land from the African community and the gas plant and the surrounding areas? Well, most of it was sleight of hand. Uh, so there were some holdouts, uh, for example, one of the, at that time, city council people was an African named David Welch. His brother had a church in the gas plant area, very large church. And he was holding out saying, no, he didn't agree with the people selling the property, uh, for this, uh, so-called light industry. That was the, that was what they were asserting was their plan to bring mm. light industry. They finally flipped him when I guess he got the right price. His brother got the right price for his church. He all of a sudden turned very friendly to the idea and uh, then decided that he was going to support it. So at that point, there was no other substantial opposition so the city used uh you know just it's just bullying tactics this is what we want to do so if you get three four fourth of the people to agree the other people are in a desperate spot because now you know you gutted the community and what are those people going to do you just like well, they're going for this thing, and they've clearly shown that because they've t- torn down all the houses around me. So what am I going to do? Right, right. So so it's just bullying tactics. And, uh, you know, and then they call it, uh, well, they, they sold the property to us. No, you, you stole the property. That's what happened. A more accurate description was you stole it. You didn't buy it. You stole it because now you're talking about a billion dollars worth of real estate. And the city is uh, at one point was saying, well, what we'll do is we'll we'll give the the Africans, uh, we'll give them a two percent benefit agreement. And uh, during the election of 2019, 
I recall that one of the city council people who was an incumbent at the time, Lisa Willa Bowman, uh, made that statement about the 2% uh, benefit agreement. And that's how they were going to right the wrongs of the gas plant area. And I remember our candidate, Akila Anai, saying, well, that's like a thief stealing $100 and then saying, you know what? I'm going to repent. I'm going to give you $2 of the 100 back. How does that sound? So it's insane to say, yes, we're going to give you 2% of all the stuff that we stole and you should be grateful. We're not going for that. We're going for the whole ball of wax. We want those 86 acres, and that's the demand we're going to be making, that we are making. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, uh, that is ridiculous. And, um, and, I, and I appreciate this campaign not settling for any kind of concession like that. Appreciate that. You are listening to Black Power Talks. Produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today we are discussing the Take Back the Dome Reparations Now campaign with our guest, Chimaranga Selimbao. Uhuru, Chimaranga. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And that uh, $2 to the $100 thing, it just really drives it home. You know, it, it really drives home the, uh, the ridiculousness of the proposal that they're trying to offer the African community. And um, uh, really uh, underscores the importance of the struggle you're leading. Now, the urban removal schemes that have pushed out the African community in St. Pete has been part of a long colonial project that people now call gentrification. Now, I recently read that the price of a one-bedroom in St. Pete is almost $1,600 on average. What effects has the destruction of the gas plant area and other parts of South St. Pete had on the African community? Well, two years ago, the average price of a two-bedroom apartment was 1400 Now, just, I haven't seen the statistics for 2020 or 2021. However, just scanning through apartment uh, prices just on the internet, it looks like the average price is about seventeen hundred uh, for a one bedroom, and the two and three bedrooms are going way over two thousand dollars. So there's an onslaught of gentrification in the form of these uh, what they're calling luxury apartment buildings uh, being built all around the African community. It's just an encroachment that, that we know is going to result in the disappearing of the African community if we don't fight back. So part of this struggle is bigger than just the dome. That's why the Reparation Land Trust and Development Authority must take control over all the property that belongs to the city in the city of St. Pete uh, on the south side <clears throat> in that empowerment zone. That's where we have to take control of that property so we can develop in the interest of the African community. If we don't do that, what we're going to see is more gentrification, more luxury apartments, and we won't be here. It's only 23% uh, of the population that is African at the current time. And so that's about 58,000 people. It's about 
250,000, 258,000 Africans. I mean, people in general in the total population, about 58,000 Africans. So it's not a very big <coughs> African population, but they are, we always have a big impact on the mayor's election. And I just talked about how the first black mayor of St. Petersburg was elected in this election. Black people did that. He couldn't have won that seat without black people being behind it. So the political stars have come together, uh, everything lined up, and uh, he was able to get elected. Now, rather we can push him in the direction we need him to be, because he's not going to walk in that direction. He's going to have to be pushed uh, toward reparations. Uh, remains to be seen, but we're going to do everything in our power to make this thing happen. Uh, gentrification is is such a devious and nefarious plan to keep forcing on the African community. Every day, it seems like I'm walk, driving down the street and I see more white people in our community walking their dogs and jogging. Uh, this was would have been totally uh, unheard of four or five years ago. In addition, there was a park downtown called Williams Park where homeless people used to sleep. Uh, they have now routed those forces out of Williams Park and forced them down to the black community. So now there are homeless people everywhere. And I mean, North American homeless people as well. Uh, so clearly this gentrification is having an impact on the on the homeless population, but there's no solution being brought forward that can solve the homeless problem. And homelessness includes people who are staying with their relatives because they can't afford $1,700 for a one-bedroom apartment. So we have to fight. It's, the, the fight is happening at multiple levels and the control over that Tropicana property is going to have a big impact on whether we're actually able to create some housing that people can actually afford. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. So, so as part of the reparations proposal, you all have proposed the creation of the Reparations Land Trust and Development Authority, RLTDA. Right, right. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is? You know, how would this work? Yeah, so the Reparations Land Trust and Development Authority would be a, uh, I guess what they call a quasi-governmental authority oh. that is elected, it's an elected board that would control the development of the 86 acres under the dome. Uh, but it would also control other pieces of land that are owned by the, currently owned by the city of St. Pete. Now, this board would not be open to everybody. It's open to only certain precincts within the African community would um, would be allowed to run for this board. So it would be an elected body, uh, but uh, they would come from specific precincts in the black community. And uh, since the bourgeoisie says voting, voting, voting is the way out of this trap, that black people are in, then uh, what we've designed in the Reparations Land Trust and Development Authority is a way for people to vote and democratically uh, 
decide what is going to happen uh, to all this land that is being gobbled up. St. Peter's about 95% built out, which means there is nowhere to go. So what's happening is they have to go where people already live. So if they're going where people already live, they're going to hit the most vulnerable, and that means black people. So that's why we're always victims of gentrification, because when these cities get built out, they're always going to attack the weakest link. So we don't intend to sit by and let the African working class be that weakest link. We got to fight back and fight for reparations and fight for for public policy or economic development. And the only way we can do that is if we get control of these 86 acres. It's going to transform the economic landscape of the African community. There'll be no more begging for jobs and that kind of stuff. It's going to turn uh, that area into a, a haven for African commerce, businesses, entrepreneurs, uh, educational in the institutions, housing. All of that is going to exist uh, and uh, not separated from the rest of the African community, but as a mainstay to create jobs and, and commerce in our own community. Uhuru, uhuru. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. And, uh, you know, uh, I really salute the struggle, like you said, for uh, self-determination of African people uh, taking the future of their community into their own hands, uh, not asking for uh, handouts and all this other sort of begging and, and mealy-mouthing that we see uh, amongst the African petty bourgeoisie. So I want to ask you a sort of a side question in acknowledgement of the long history of Uhuru movement leadership in St. Petersburg, Florida. Now, we recently observed the 25th anniversary of the Battle of St. Pete, and we're nearing the 55th anniversary of Chairman Omalia Chatella's, then known as Joe Waller's, removal of George Snowhill's racist mural at St. Petersburg City Hall. Uh, I have argued that the continued black power organizing in St. Pete has led to the many victories the movement has sustained in St. Pete, as well as the oncoming victory of the African Revolution internationally. So how has that history of organization and uh, your own history of organization, being a lifelong member, prepared you all for this moment right now? Well, I I would say that all these struggles that have happened uh, even before the party existed, even as the chairman was building the Hunter of Militant Organizations in 1968 during the sanitation worker strike, which is when I came into political life. I was 17 at the time. Um, it started to mold not just the revolutionaries who belong to that organization, but also it started to mold and create a different kind of African community, an African community that was uh, dedicated to fighting back and winning. So uh, there was a rebellion in 1968, um, and a lot of that happened because of, of an attack that happened on the chairman when he was beat up by the police. And uh, that rebellion lasted for several days. 
uh, several million dollars in in damage, and it was uh, just a war zone going on uh, in the city of St. Pete. Sanitation workers were fighting for better pay and better conditions on the job, um, and they brought in scabs to replace the sanitation workers back in 1968, and uh, they couldn't do much because the scabs they brought in were wrecking the trucks, the garbage trucks. So um, it was a. It, it's been a long time, I guess. If you think about my own age, I guess it's been a long time. But in historical terms, it's been a blink of an eye. So in, in historical terms, it's it's just uh, if you blink. Then I was in high school playing football, and now I'm 70 years old and still fighting for reparations and fighting for education for African students and fighting for housing for African people. So the struggle just continued, uh, but probably in the last 10 years, it's, of course, with technology and deeper organization. Uh, it's really escalated the struggle. We have an Uhura House two-story building in the St. Petersburg, Florida. That's that's a mainstay of resistance inside the city of St. Pete. Uh, very well known. If you ask somebody in the African community, where's the Uhura House? If they don't know, then they're probably not from St. Pete. So, you know, longevity is one thing. But what you do with that longevity is the more important thing. Because, uh, like I said, history is, uh, you know, these 40-something years that I've been in the movement, historically, really is a blink of an eye. But this struggle will go on uh, until we get self-determination, hopefully in my lifetime. I believe in my lifetime. Uh, so that's what the fight is about to the end struggle, not just about getting a land reparations, land trust and development authority, but getting total liberation. So there's black community control of the police. And so there's uh, control over our communities. So the African people's militia is in control of our security as opposed to the police department. So I think longevity, again, is, is an important thing. In terms of gaining experience, teaching the people how to fight back, and also learning how to better carry out uh, the objectives of the organization as we move forward. So um, I, I, I don't know if that answered your question adequately, but I, I, I think when we start looking at uh, the passing of time, we have to kind of contextualize it in in sort of what does it mean within historical terms? Uh, no, it's superbly, superbly. And I'm happy that you, you know, you shed light on those years. I know that we are nearing the 50th anniversary of the African People's Socialist Party, but really showing that period and showing the way through which, like you said, it's not just having longevity, but what you've done with that longevity. Uh, and um, what we see is a movement built uh, in defense of the uh, African working class, uh, understanding that the African working class has to uh, 
come to power to overturn, uh, you know, not just the last 50 plus years, but almost 600 years of colonial domination of Africa and African people. So, yeah, thanks for that. Um, Monsamela, I think it's important to note that, uh, you know, I was 17 when I started in the Uhuru movement. I'm 70 years old now. But a new generation of revolutionaries to carry on the fight for self-determination, carry on the fight for total liberation of Africa uh, are coming along. Uh, uh, we have such great forces who who continue the ideological trajectory uh, and the practical trajectory to, to build our movement and win our freedom. So I, I think it's... Uh, the struggle is continuing, but I think it's continuing in a better place than it was when I joined 40 years ago. Uhuru. 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 So just as far as, uh, you know, the forces that we are, we're up against, uh, for decades now, there's been a sort of class peace between elements of the African petty bourgeoisie and St. Pete and the wealthy white developers. But a lot of that has become untethered in recent years. So from what I've heard, the mayoral race brought out some division in the African petty bourgeoisie. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, it wasn't just the, uh, just, it wasn't only the mayor's race, but uh, right below the surface in this city, there's still pretty well-known struggle going on between forces who were associated with the former mayor, Rick Baker, and the current mayor, Rick Christman. So different sectors of the black petty bourgeoisie supported those two forces in not the last election of this year, but uh, four years ago. So this particular election, uh, it did seem to coalesce uh, most of the black petty bourgeoisie behind Ken Welch. Now, uh, what he did reveal, though, in this election, uh, on the ballot were seven different amendments, ballot amendments, charter amendments, and one of them was Amendment 1. Amendment 1 would have changed the way that St. Petersburg carries out carries out its city council elections from uh, at-large voting in the general election to single-member district voting, which is a pretty common practice in many states and cities. Uh, that was on the ballot. Uh, we fought for that. We created a campaign around uh, vote yes on Amendment 1. Uh, and in a lot of ways, we felt like it was even more important than the mayoral race, uh, because in the mayoral race, what we had in the general election was uh, a white Republican who uh, was an opportunist at best. He was on the city council for two years, and then he resigned uh, to run for mayor. Uh, he thought very highly of himself. And then you have an African who sat on the county commission for 20 years. Then he resigned to run for mayor. So uh, 
Ken Welch had superior name recognition. Uh, his father had been on the city council during the days that they destroyed the gas plant area. His father was on the city council. So the name Welch was very well known. So even though he served a pretty nondescript 20 years on the county commission, he used his name recognition uh, and the ever-growing motion in all over the U.S. in the African community, particularly around the George Floyd thing that created 15,000 demonstrations in 2020 and many millions of people coming into political life who had never been in a demonstration in their life, that had an impact on the city of St. Petersburg as well. And I think it turned a political corner of sorts uh, for, for white liberals who, who kind of decided that, you know, well, maybe having a black mayor that's, you know, a neo-colonialist, maybe that's not a bad idea. Uh, and he, he won the, at, at, at one time he was polling 10% percentage, percentage points ahead of his, uh, competition, Robert Blackman, who ended up second in the, uh, primary was actually running a close uh, fourth at the time during the last poll I saw, but he ended up being second. So uh, in the general election, when that election was over, uh, Welch had actually won by 20 percentage points, a landslide against a white candidate that had never happened in the city of St. Petersburg before. No African candidate had ever defeated a white candidate before. So uh, here you got uh, this African who uh, really has no tr track record of defending the African community, uh, which made him, I'm sure, more attractive to the white community in the city of St. Pete. He, he's, you know, and he's starting off talking about these community conversations and let's talk about progress. But even the way that those meetings are set up, they're set up in a way that uh, you know he doesn't intend for it to go anywhere. He he didn't really uh, campaign really aggressively, and I suspect he didn't do that because he didn't want to take any chances that he would make a mistake. So uh, Amendment 1, uh, again, Amendment 1 that would have changed the face of how these city council elections are carried out in the city of St. Pete. Uh, it would have uh, negated this hybrid system that they use right now, where they use single member districts where only the people in the districts can vote in the primary. And then when the general election gets the top two vote getters, then the white people, these, these, all these white voters can vote. Everybody can vote in the general election and, and that essentially negates the vote of the the districts, whether they're black or white. Uh, right now there's only one majority African district. It's 68% African in District 7. So uh, that the vote of those people in that district uh, is always going to be negated. The white people decide who's going to be the council person. 
from that district. There are now three black city council people. There was an African elected from District 8, which is a white district. So I think there has been sort of a turning of the corner uh, among white liberals who seem to have been able to uh, mobilize enough votes to get uh, a third African elected from a white district that was that had never happened before. Uh, and of course, then we never had a black man in the city of St. Pete. However, I would caution uh, your listeners, particularly the people who live in St. Pete, <clears throat> that uh, you know when when the Titanic sunk, it was an unsinkable ship, and it was the first time an unsinkable ship sunk. So, within that context, we can think about the historic value of having the first black mayor. Well, every time something is a first doesn't mean it's positive. So we have to look at it in that context. Nobody's trying to make the Titanic happen again. So uh, if you look at it in that context, having a neo-colonialist in power as opposed to a, just a straight out colonizer isn't very helpful. So uh, that's what we're up against, but uh, we feel like we got them outnumbered. Oh, yes, yes, outnumbered for sure, for sure. And on that note, as we noted at the top of the show, there are a lot of reparations campaigns going on throughout the U.S. and throughout the African world. I mean, I was just reading about some stuff taking place over in Australia amongst the African community over there. What can all these people learn from your struggles, from the campaigns you're leading now and the campaigns you've led over the last 40 plus years? Well, I think what they can learn is that, uh, well, what does your struggle for reparations mean as it relates to, to what end? What is the ultimate aim because if you look at it in that context, you won't look at reparations as separate from the whole struggle for total liberation of African people. So if you can look at it in that way, that's what I would uh, say that people have to do. Kind of open up your mind. Don't close your mind and say, well, reparations is the, is the, the be all and end all. It's not an end into itself. It's a tool. It's a weapon to be used in the struggle for total liberation. So if, if nothing else is heard from what I said today, hopefully other organizers can hear that in their struggle for reparation. Ooh. So, so how do we build this uh, this campaign, comrade? You know, what what future actions does the Take Back the Dome campaign have planned, and how can the people get involved? Okay, well, you can people can always call us at seven two seven nine one four three six one seven, or they can email us at uh, reparations uh, is due at yahoo.com. They can call us at seven two seven nine one four three six one seven. We have an action coming up on Sunday, 11.45 a.m. 
we would like people to be to the Uhura House by 1115. Uh, and uh, we're going to demonstrate for an hour at the corner of 5th Avenue South and 16th Street. That's right at the corner of parking lot number four of the Tropicana Dome. So um, other actions are going to be planned. Uh, and uh, also I would encourage people to sign up to to join into this community conversation by the mayor-elect, uh, Ken Welch. That's going to be 9 a.m. to 12, 8 to 12 p.m. on Saturday, December the 11th, the 19th, yeah, 11th, December the 11th. So it's one on Friday, December the 10th, and then on Saturday, December the 11th, then it's a virtual meeting December the 13th on Monday. So we'll be attending the one on Saturday from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern uh, at the University of South Florida in St. Petersburg Ballroom. So that's what I can say for now. Certainly go online, sign our reparations now, petition, take back the dome. And, you know, when you see our organizers with the hard copy of the petition, sign that petition and so we can get these 86 acres. Uhuru, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you for that, Conrad. Uh, I just really want to uh, appreciate you for being able to come on to the show with us this morning. I really want to salute all oh. the dynamic work being done by the campaign. And I just want to just reinforce the call made by Chimaranga to build this campaign, how to get in contact with this campaign and make sure that we accomplish what we need to accomplish. Well, I appreciate being on. Anytime I'm, I'm giving a given space to talk about this important matter, the question of reparations in general, the question of take back the dome reparations in the form of those 86 acres, I'll be more than happy to come on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today, we discussed the Take Back the Dome Reparations Now campaign with our guest, Chimaranga Selimbao. Our theme song, Get Up and Do Something, was written and performed by Alikia and Goma. Thanks to the People's War Radio Show's production, research, and promotions team, including Jaja Robinson, Empress Livewire, and the Hipster Panda. Uhuru. You can pray until you faint. You don't get up and try to do something. God is not going to put it in your lap. And there's no need of running and no need of saying, Honey, I'm not going to get in the mess. Because if you are born in America with a black face, you're born. 
Thanks.